You're listening to the Girls Talk podcast, hosted by me, Adria Burr, and powered by our friends at Nike. This is where girls come together to talk, share, listen, and take control. So listen to us every week for your source of fierce chat. And don't forget to subscribe. Hi everyone, it's Body and Skin Month at Girls Talk, which means we'll be discussing the impact our physical appearance can have on us, how society likes to project a narrow descriptor of what's normal, and however hard it can be at times, learning to love ourselves and the body and the skin we're in is what it's all about. So, my guest today is the amazing Sinead Burke. As a woman with achondroplasia, a form of dwarfism, she not only embraces her differences, but actively campaigns to highlight the importance of creating fashion and design for people with disabilities. You may have read about Sinead in Vogue's September issue, as she's one of the 15 forces for change. She's a writer, academic, activist, diversity advocate and lecturer. Sinead, welcome to the Girls Talk. I'm so thrilled to be part of this. You have no idea. I wish you were here, but you're in Paris. I know. What are you up to in Paris? I have been here for a whole month to learn French. My... French lesson prior to this was in school, so 10 years ago, and it's been such a treat to be here for all of August when Paris is quiet and to explore the city and to improve upon my French a little. And what was that? Was that just something you've always wanted to do or something to tick off the long list of accomplishments you've already done? (laughs) Well, I just like the idea of being terribly chic and being able to speak French. (laughs) (laughs) It's more, you know, a personal branding exercise that I'm not quite sure how successful I have been at. Um, But I think such a treat, much like yourself, a little bit less so, but my work and my travel schedule is often a little bit hectic. And to be in Mm -hmm. one place for one month, also in a mindfulness way, was so was such a gift. So to be able to be here and to use my mind to focus on something entirely different to the rest of the year and to stretch it by learning French and grammar and structure and culture and have access to a whole new world, it was just not something I could say no to. No, completely. I had that this summer. It's so nice to be in one place and to unpack and to get to know a city or a little, or, you know, in my case, a little village. And it was just, it was like a blessing. I missed and my I family. I see the same though. faces every. Yeah, I miss my family as well. I'm t- I'm highly codependent when it comes to my parents. Well, so much of my month in Paris was actually about gaining that independence. I still live at home with my family and my parents, and they're amazing people. But I haven't really learned to cook for myself. Not necessarily because mm. I have a disability primarily because I'm lazy and being in Paris on my own for a month has meant that I have learned to make cheesecake I have learned to make chicken curry from scratch with the sauce from scratch and I have basically come away from this month with the most enormous ego about well now I can do anything and everything so those who have to face me in September my apologies in advance I loved what you said independent so When I first met you, or maybe it was the second time I met you, you told me that you lived with your parents. Mm. And you've often spoken about this flawed world that we live in, and in your case, one that doesn't always have your best interests at heart in terms of designing a world that's better for you to live in. How important is your independence to you? And how do you find it in a sometimes quite difficult world it's extraordinarily 
important to me as a person and an entity. Whilst here in Paris, I went to that incredible bookshop, Shakespeare and Co., and I picked up a book by Bell Hooks. And in it, she talks about this extraordinary relationship between agency and power. And so often those are not things that we can gift to each other or, you know, that we're born with or without them. And I didn't choose to be a little person. I didn't choose to have dwarfism. It manifested within my genetic makeup in the womb. And yet because of something that I had no hand, act or part in, my access to the world, physical access and cultural and emotional and spatial access to the world, is limited or is challenged because those who have created this world in many ways have created it for themselves. And when you come back to the notions of agency and power, those who have had power have been quite normative in their own Mm -hmm. desire and in their own experience. So the work that I've been trying to do is to widen that lens and to think about, you know, not just access and design as something that we need for agency, but also something that could create beauty. I think one of the reasons why we haven't created environments and worlds that are accessible to everybody is because we have this archaic view of access that it's ugly or needs to be ugly in order to be accessible. We throw a clunky silver metal ramp on a building, which is probably why beautiful cities like Paris and different parts of the world are not accessible to those who are wheelchair users, to little people, because we haven't yet figured out how to make archaic wonders and architectural beauties accessible in a way that doesn't impinge on their beauty and their visuals, but adds to it. And I'm really excited to see that in the future where that might go. And have you been, in terms of your activism and your continuous kind of like advocacy for everything that you're about have you has your work kind of fallen into those kind of those realms of accessibility and working with designers and and creating a you know certain spaces that aren't just you know I think you're completely right you know I think there is a view that putting a ramp on the side of a beautiful building is going to ruin it have you been kind of talking to certain designers or anything like that in your work absolutely my work was never intended to be in this space. It was never intended to be in fashion. My background is in education. I'm a primary or an elementary school teacher by trade. And I began a blog when I was 18 because I felt left out of the fashion industry as the eldest of five children, most of whom I have sisters. I have three sisters and one brother. I felt that it was unjust that my sisters, because they were average height and not little people, could access clothes in the fashion industry in the way that I could not. So much like the design of the physical world, fashion was a similar access point that I just couldn't enter into. And the internet became this amazing space where, despite not hiding what I looked like and my disability, what was interesting to other people was the point of view that I had in building a community. But talking to to designers about access broadly, for me, the choice of working within fashion was explicit. Because much like we're talking Mm. about beauty and beautiful cities, I have always known and been proud of the fashion industry as a leader in culture, as a leader in popular culture. If the fashion industry steps forward in some movement, be it sustainability, be it women's rights, be it looking after the Amazon, the rest of the world takes note because fashion Mm -hmm. interacts with so many other industries, be it film and television, be it sport, be it the environment, be it access, be it inclusion and diversity or lack thereof. And I was always very conscious that if my grandiose dream was ever to be realized, 
it would be realized through the lens of fashion. Because if you can convince the CEOs and the creative directors of the biggest fashion brands in the world to take this issue of inclusion and accessibility seriously, every other industry would follow. And that has been my grand dream, never thinking ever that I would get to be in a position where you're meeting with CEOs or creative directors and thinking, so I have an idea. You know this system that you have built that has been in existence forever? Well, I'd quite like you to change it. And I'd quite (laughs) like you to, to modulate your entire business model because actually there's more money to be made and it's better for our moral compasses in society to include everyone. And sometimes I bridge this frustration of change not moving fast enough but then understanding that you are trying to change something that has existed within its own entity forever but also understanding that in order for change to be impactful it has to move at a slower pace it cannot be stagnant but it has to move at a slower pace because there's always an appetite to do something for the publicity that it may acquire and this is about people it's not about publicity so we need to move with an intentional slow pace where change is constant, but considered. And is part of this, I mean, is power, does power come into this in terms, and what I mean by this is, I've always thought when talking to, you know, big corporations and the CEOs and board of directors, they, there is so much power in the fashion industry, like you said, in terms of the points that they can get across and if they put their mind to it, if they start thinking outside the box. Do you, you know, when you go into these certain meetings, do you, do you tell them this, that they have the ability to, to make such massive monumental changes if they so wish to? Absolutely. And it's mm. in the grandiose decisions or actions that are being made, but also in the smaller ones. I mean, this September, you and I, Adwa, had the great honour and privilege Mm. And I was very privileged to share it alongside you, the cover of the September issue of British Vogue. And on that cover was the first ever trans person to be on the cover of Vogue and the first ever little person to be on the cover of Vogue. And for me, obviously, that's an exercise in my own ego. But actually, (laughs) it's also about the young people who are passing magazine stands and see a reflection of themselves or even older Mm -hmm. people who are seeing a reflection of themselves. And we don't know the impact of that yet. It can't be measured. But who knows, they may have a moment and think, do you know what, maybe I would like to work in fashion or maybe I would like to work in a space where someone like me hasn't existed. And it's and I a think, possibility. Absolutely. And all of a sudden yeah. they're given permission to dream. And for me, when I talk to CEOs and I talk to creative directors and those with power, be it at Davos or be it at a fashion week, for me, what I have learned most is two things. Often the phrase I hear employed every day within these conversations is, We haven't thought about this before. Mm. And that's not necessarily out of malice. There just haven't been the people in the room to raise these questions. And it comes back to power. That if everybody looks and thinks the same and has the same experiences, nobody is going to think to ask the question about why the ramp at the front of the building is clunky or why there's only one model of colour on the runway or why we haven't had a trans person in a campaign or why all of our clothes are not accessible to people with disabilities who can't utilise buttons. And it's about mm-hmm. changing those dynamics and changing the, the positions and introducing power sharing rather than the authoritative power that we've had forever and introducing power sharing and collaboration and inviting people like yourself, myself, the next generation in and being really open to saying, well, what are we doing wrong or what could we do better or what are your ideas? And it's been really thrilling to see that starting in some companies, 
But we have ways to go in every domain. This isn't just fashion. It's politics. It's art. It's government. It's education. It's in every facet of our lives. But the more and more advocates and young people who are saying we want more and we deserve our voices to be heard and we have a legal right to have a say about things that affect us. And these are our ideas and suggestions. The more and the more accelerated change will occur. And you spoke about permission. Who, when you were 18 and you started blogging, who was it that gave you permission? Where did you feel the permission coming from in terms of to kind of set your your standards high and to reach so high and accomplish all that you've you've done so far? My parents. My parents are extraordinary people. My father's a little person like me and my mom is average height, my dad and my mom. And growing up with my dad being a little person, 80% of people with dwarfism and who are little people are the only one like them in their family. So it's quite unique Mm -hmm. and very special that growing up, I always had this tangible role model right in front of me and probably didn't realize the value of that till I was much older. Because if questions ever came into my mind, if, you know, can I do that? I always knew that everything would be okay because my dad thrived and succeeded in everything. But I decided that I wanted to be a primary school teacher on the day of my fourth birthday, my very first day of school. Really? Mm. Yeah. And I, like, I was, you can imagine, I was that student who, when a teacher asked a question, my arm was falling off with the enthusiasm with which I waved it <laughs> in the middle of the class. I was that child that everybody else hated. A proper hated. keen bean. Yeah, oh, yeah. God. You're like, oh, God, Sinead's put her hand up again. Up the front of the class, not because mm. I couldn't see, but because I was just so <laughs> excited to be there. I don't think I missed a day of school for my entire secondary school education, which will tell you everything you need to know about how cool I am. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I came home from school and I said to my parents really flippantly, I'm going to be a teacher. And straight away, their immediate reaction was great. Amazing. And I look back on the power of that moment now and realize that I don't doubt that they were nervous. Not that I wouldn't be able to be a teacher, but that the world may not let me. Because if we're talking about environments and access, I couldn't reach the blackboard. The children were going to be bigger than me from age four. The whole notion of somebody look like me being at the top of the room hadn't had huge experience of before. I grew up wanting to have a teacher like me at the top of the room, and that never happened. And yeah. it was their confidence in me that, that I could do it, that I might have to find a different way to do it. So something as simple as I wasn't tall enough to hang the artwork on the walls, which is very important in primary school. So among my class and among my students, we developed a team of curators. And the boys would say to me, Miss Burke, I know you try really hard at art, but it's just not your skill. And that's okay. <laughs> Your work can't go on the wall this week. But my goodness, Adwa, you are a natural. Look at the colour, the vibrancy, the texture straight up in the centre of the wall. But that was skills that my students developed in reaction yeah. to me not being able to reach. And it was about opportunity more than, more than disadvantage or challenge. But my parents have always been, and even now, they are wonderfully um, blasé about all of the things that I do because they have very little interest in fashion. So I'll come home or, you know, I I went to the Met Gala this year and I said, you know, I'm going to the Met Gala. And I was tremendously excited. And my dad said, "Can that's great. I'm thrilled for you. But can I just ask, is it a party in a museum? And I said, (laughs) yeah, dad, it is. When the museum is closed. And I said, yeah. And you're excited about that. And I said, yeah, he was lovely. That's great. <laughs> and I think that's really helpful too, to have the pairing of, of the both, the support and the nonchalance. And I mean, you, I was speaking about this with my friend yesterday about this 
notion of Kant and this continuous energy that kind of surrounds us and surrounds different communities in in terms of being told continuously that you can't do something. When your pet, you know, age four, when you told your parents that you wanted to be a primary teacher and they, you know, immediately pushed you in the right direction and gave you that support, is that something that you've continuously brought into your own work? Is that, you know, maybe something that's a big part of why you became a primary teacher and that idea that whether you're disabled, that anything is a possibility. Absolutely. For me, education is such a catalyst for all things, be it poverty, be it oppression, be it challenges that exist within society and kind of the structures and the organisations within societal systems. And I kind of look at what I do now within the fashion world still as education. I'm facilitating complex Mm. conversations and dialogues. But, you know, I have kept a list of things that I've wanted to do since I was 18 years old. And they were everything from going to the Met Gala to being on the cover of the September issue of British Vogue, like bizarre goals that I had. And I think that surrounding and that community that I have, I'm very fortunate to have some incredible friends and my siblings and my parents and my family are amazing people. And for that to be the constant reminder, almost the diameter to my own existence is that I can do anything. I might have to find a different way to do it. But I have always been incredibly ambitious and have never been apologetic for it. And my responsibility now in many ways is to try to encourage that in lots of other people, particularly younger people, because I realized in my early teenage years that that was a gift I was given from my parents. It's not immediate that that's what everybody else receives and it's about encouraging Mm -hmm. people to say well what's the worst that can happen you know you already have a no at the minute you already can't do it because you're in a position where you haven't tried so if you attempt and leap forward it may be a possibility or it may not and I think that's something that we all need to remind ourselves and have this mantra of you know I can do it I can try and even if I don't succeed I have learned something from the process and I'm a step forward and closer to achieving it the next time and I think sometimes we're enveloped in this fear and nervousness of pride and shame and I don't know I think we should just do what it is we want to do Mm -hmm. and I think I mean it makes me think about what when I met you and you told me about walking up going to the Met Gala beforehand wrecking and and knowing that you wanted to walk up those stairs yourself was that a I can do anything moment yeah. And it's, it's, I can do anything moment. And I imagine you feel this yourself also as an advocate. It's being conscious that I can only speak for myself. Yeah. And I try to only speak for myself. I try to create parallels between my lived experience to other people to cultivate an empathy so that we can understand more broadly the world and the people in which we exist around. But it's also this nervousness sometimes that when the world is watching and the Met Gala is one of those moments when the world is watching, People assume that what you can do or can't do, everyone else can, and that your life is the Mm -hmm. same as everyone else who looks like you. And I am a white, straight, cisgendered woman who is disabled and with a working class background from Ireland. So my lived experience is not the same as everybody. And you're trying to take that step forward for yourself, but whilst also being aware that, you know, it's still a flight of stairs at the Met Gala. And whilst I can undertake those 21 stairs independently, It's important to think about, well, has there been a wheelchair user invited to the Met Gala or at the, you know, and how would that person access the Met Gala? And there's an accessible entrance around the side to the Met Museum, but it's not a red carpet moment. So by being able to have conversations 
with people and talking about access policies in these big moments, it's really important to constantly not just think of yourself and be satisfied Mm -hmm. with that result, but to be interrogating and hopefully provoking new ideas. But it's a delicate balance, as I imagine you might know. Yeah, 100%. What changes have you seen since, you know, all the things that you've been up to? What, you know, working with Gucci, all the work that you've been doing, what massive changes have you seen um, whilst navigating life at three foot five? I've seen a greater understanding in the vision of where we need to go. I've seen yeah. an understanding that change takes time. But I've been fortunate to, to be part of several projects with the National Museums of Scotland. There is an exhibition called Body Beautiful. And it's the first ever fashion exhibition that focuses solely on diversity in fashion through the intersections of race, disability, age, gender, orientation. And for that exhibition, they asked if they could borrow some of my clothes. And of course, I was like, sure, take what you like. And then we began to have this conversation about how they would display those clothes. And the initial suggestion was, oh, well, maybe we could hang them from the ceiling or we could figure out a creative way to do it. And I said, well, how are the rest of the clothes being displayed? They said, by mannequins. So how do we get a mannequin made that looks like me? So over the course of six visits to Proportion London, which is one of the biggest mannequin manufacturers in the world, I was cast, live cast, in six different portions, my legs, my hips, my stomach, um, my chest, my arms. And for the first time, there is now a mannequin made for a little person, not only for that exhibition, but retailers can now invest and buy in. So for me, the changes come about in the moments where you find, well, what about, how could we, why? Mm-hmm. I think there's been greater visibility of disabled people in a number of campaigns. Your Nike campaign, Adwa, has a disabled model out front and a disabled yeah. athlete. And I think we are beginning to more and more ask those questions. And some people will perhaps say that this is a tokenistic approach. But do we have an authentic reflection of society within our visuals? And I think that is such an important first step that we have seen take place in so many different brands. But for me, the next question is, okay, well, how do we then go and change the culture that exists within those companies? How do we make sure that we're not only just hiring people for the visuals for the brand, but also internally? And that takes longer. We've seen Chanel, Gucci, a number of brands, Prada creating a diversity council, Gucci hiring a diversity officer, Chanel doing the same. And I'm really interested to see. It's like what you said at the beginning of the conversation. It's about having, not only in the campaigns, but having those people in the room, isn't it? But with Exactly. And with that change, you cannot just bring people Mm -hmm. in. You need to change the culture first because it's great to be able to say we have hired 25 black designers in our brand or we have hired 25 black disabled designers in our brand. But if the buildings and the architecture and the culture haven't been transformed to be inclusive for those people, they won't retain that employment. So it's about looking at the whole ecosystem of the company and one of the challenges is is that this whole industry is circular so giving the example of the mannequins so the challenge is if you create adaptive clothes which a brand like Tommy Hilfiger is doing or Fora is doing the question then comes how can you display those clothes in store well we need mannequins okay and which which step comes first is always the challenge but I'm so thrilled to see that progress is happening slowly but I think People who are working in the industry need to continue to push forward. 
But I also think that the customers or aspirational customers have a responsibility too. We are always so vocal and rightfully so when brands and companies and individuals do things that are wrong. But we are often less vocal when we see things that are positive, when we see things that are stretching the boundary. And I'm not in a position to be able to afford to acquire Mm -hmm. the collections, the seasonal collections of every brand. But if I see something where, you know, Kirby in Pierre Moss's every season, all of the models are models of color. And I think that is something incredible to celebrate and to honor. And I think we need to have a responsibility more and more that even if our transaction Mm -hmm. is not financial, we can play into this. We can amplify these things because the more attention and attraction that these things get, the more it will become the norm and just the way in which we do things. But you're completely right. And I think that makes me think back to our, you know, our forces for change cover. I think there's a continue. there's so much concentration on what people aren't doing. And I don't know where that comes from. I'm not sure if that's anger, if that's fear, that someone's doing something different. But there was so much great energy around our cover and there was so much hateful, such hateful attitude around it. And I and I and it falls back into what you said about, you know, we're so quick to pull people up. Um, but we forget about all the good that's happening in the world. And I really try even Personally, I wake up and I try hard to make sure that I concentrate on all the accomplishments that are being made on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. But I just wanted to see what your opinion was on that because it's something that confuses me. I read, you know, I, I stop myself from reading articles about things that I think are so good, but still there are people who are just eager to point out what they think is wrong. I think there's a a flippancy when something positive or good happens. We somewhat feel that, oh, well, somebody else is going to talk about that or somebody else is Mm going to amplify that. But there's almost a currency to often the negativity and the vitriol that, you know, like that if you talk about something online in in a negative way, often it can gain you likes, it can gain you retweets, it can gain you attention sometimes in the way in which positive things do not. And that, that's not necessarily social media, that's, that's society. You know, mm-hmm. much like yourself, I imagine, if someone gives me five compliments and one snarky, not-so-nice <laughs> comment, it's the snarky one that will permeate in my brain. And I will have completely forgotten the five positive things that they told me. I think it's just part of the human psyche. And that's not to say it can't be changed, but I think we need to reprogram ourselves to focus on what is a little bit more positive sometimes. And that's not to say that when things happen that are wrong and misconducts occur and injustices happen that we shouldn't amplify them, we absolutely should. But we need to make sure that we pay attention to those things that are good too. And for me, I am learning so much from you from Girls Talk. I think that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to start my own podcast was to try to to tell stories of extraordinary people who are doing good or have an interesting way in which to view the world. So as me with Sinead is trying to expose us to new ways of of living and being and being in our own skin from different types of people to inform us to create empathy and to hopefully make us feel better about the world in which we live. And for you, Sinead, on like a day-to-day basis, what what I know you live at home and we spoke briefly at the shoot about kind of you just walk me through some of the things that even I'm sometimes, you know, I'm shocked that I don't even think about it, you know, in terms of like light switch heights and and let me tell you you'll be really proud for my house I'm building 
I, I bought my first house and we're making sure that everything is height standard for... Is that an invitation to stay over when I'm yeah, in London? Yeah, that is, Sinead. Yeah, anytime you want. Anytime you want. I, I'll be able to sleep in the dark. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, but, you know, one thing that I would say is don't harbour any guilt about mm, not... Yeah realizing these things because it goes back to what we're saying earlier our own lived experience informs the lens that we view through the world so your experiences of the world and what it's like to be you and the positives and the challenges that you face I am completely ignorant to and I think it's important that that ignorance doesn't attempt to divide us but but yeah, that be linked to it right my my challenges based on being a little person are twofold so they are architecturally and building, and I literally live in a world that wasn't designed for me. So it's the height of locks on doors. It's being able to reach things in the kitchen. It's being able to go to the bathroom and being able to lock the door in the bathroom, being able to reach the sink. And for me, I'm often beguiled and surprised that I face those challenges, particularly in a public bathroom, because mm -hmm. how many parents have to pick up their child and haul them over a sink in order to wash their hands? Why do we not design public spaces for children? Because they mm -hmm. exist and they will continue to exist because we need them in terms of the human race. And yet we have designed a world that deliberately excludes them. And that is challenging, but I have found ways in which to manage that. And I like to describe myself as organized, creative and articulate, which is the greatest humble brag one will have ever heard. Mm -hmm. And those are skills that I have had to develop to survive the design of the world because when I look at something that I cannot reach I immediately have to come up with a creative solution by which I'm going to conquer that and achieve that I have to be organized because it takes me longer to get anywhere if you and I were walking together I don't know what height you are Adwa, but I imagine you are quite a bit taller than I am you will walk mm. at a faster rate than I will so I'll have to work out how that sits with me and it's just mm -hmm. trying to think about that and then the second challenge that I face is people's assumptions they look at me and yeah. they assume what it is I can or can't do or they for you yeah or they they behave horrendously they can call me names they can point at me they can take photographs of me without their consent and upload them to the internet because they think again it will give them that currency and for me again the work in fashion is important because fashion has this power as we were saying to change culture that if there is a representation of people who look like me within a beautiful framing then all of a sudden, it's really not cool to take a yeah. photograph of somebody in the street just because they're a little person. But mm -hmm. I'm really lucky that my defense mechanism for all of this has always been my family. I think in my very first experience when I was very, very young, of somebody being cruel and unkind because I was a little person, my mom sat with me and she said, you know, Sinead, unfortunately, this is something that you'll probably have to face for quite a while. But I mm -hmm. want you to always ask yourself a question. In that moment, when somebody is treating you cruelly because of something you had no hand actor part in, which one of you would you rather be? Would you rather be you, who is fulfilled and happy and surrounded by great people and achieving great things? Or would you rather be that other person who, by looking at them, they fit all of society's definitions of what normal is, even though I don't think that word exists. And yet they are spending their time making you feel poor about yourself so that they can feel good. Which one of those two people do you want to be? And unsurprisingly, I choose me every single time. <laughs> yep. God, that's such a good, that's a good pep talk. I must remember that. Do. We must all remember that when do. we have those days. And 
on those bad days when you feel that that energy of exclusion coming from society what do you go do you fall back to that do you do you still f- I'm, I'm pretty you know that would be a silly question yeah. of course you still feel it but is it is that something is that a thing that you still fall back onto is it your parents still your kind of your support and your your yeah, your safety blanket I'm always quite solution driven I try to be mm-hmm. I had an instance in Ireland a couple of months ago and I have written about this, but I was walking down the street on a Tuesday afternoon and minding my own business, and two young boys walked past me. I thought nothing of it until about 30 seconds later, one of them leapfrogged over me from behind, all the while his friend recorded the incident on his phone to upload it to I don't know where. And I remember being so upset it was I was crying visibly in the middle of the street and a couple of people saw it happened and nobody really did anything about it and I was upset for a couple of different reasons you know they looked at me and they didn't see me as a person they saw me as an object and I was also crying because the the confidence it takes to think that you can run and jump over a four-foot person without harming them or having no care as to whether you would harm them because I kept thinking, what if he'd have missed? He'd have kicked me in mm-hmm. the head or the neck and, and what damage could that have caused? But in that moment, my immediate reaction was threefold. I rang my mother, sobbing down the phone to her. I was like, yeah. this just happened. And she said, have you rang the police? And I said, no. And I do some work with the police in Ireland to transform their thinking about hate speech and hate crime and to broaden it. And it's not necessarily about making every incident result in a prison sentence, but that if I ring the police very upset because somebody took a photograph of me or somebody called me names or somebody jumped over me, that their immediate reaction is is empathy rather than anything else. So I rang the police and the police took it seriously. But I kind of took a step back and said, you know, what actually will those two young boys learn if yeah. they are caught? All they will learn is not to get caught. They will just learn to not do it in a street in which there is CCTV. They will. They haven't actually learned the reason as to why what they did was wrong or harmful or hurtful. So I collaborated with an organization in Dublin called the Northeast Inner City and went to every primary school and a couple of the secondary schools that was in that area and just went in and spoke to them and answered their questions and tried to use my lived ex- experience to bring together broader narratives. And in the hope that those children would go home to their parents to their siblings to their communities and go do you know what I learned today little person is actually the term that this girl Sinead Burks prefers to be called and then what was quite interesting was so in Ireland our state exams are the junior cert and the leaving cert you do the junior cert at around 15 16 and the leaving cert at 18 and this year's junior cert which those boys would have had to have legally have taken for the English exam they had to answer questions on my TED talk which I think was just <laughs> lovely. So can you imagine, can you imagine jumping over some gal yeah. in the street and, you're like, oh, and then God. your state yeah. exams exactly. are required answering questions about her life? I, I think that's delicious. I think so too. <laughs> and Sinead, you've accomplished so much from challenging the fashion world and winning to red carpets and PhDs all through your own drive and passion. So having achieved so much, what's next for you? I want to do the podcast as me with Sinead and to do it well. But actually, more than anything, 
for the next number of years. Well, I want to buy a house, so you can teach yeah. me about that. And that's that's on my personal book list. It's very exciting. That's on my personal book list. Yeah, that's on my yeah. personal book list. But actually, what I really want is for me not to be the only one in the room who looks like yeah. me or who thinks like me. And I want to push that trajectory forward in the next years and months to ensure that the solution has never been me getting to wear beautiful dresses and me getting to attend events, which is very exciting. And I'm very lucky to be able to do so. But it's about how do you bring together whatever movement and motion that I have been able to bring to the table and ensure that other people feel welcomed in. So that's what I really want to make happen next. And then I might take a bit of a break, <laughs> like what you're yeah. doing. That could be quite <laughs> nice. With your low lights in your house, I will be dreaming of that tonight. Yeah, no, you're definitely coming. You're definitely <laughs> coming. Girls Share. Next, we have Girls Share. Here is where we are sent incredible submissions from our Girls Talk community. And this week, we have an incredibly moving submission from Erin. So I'm going to have a little read. I was born with bilateral proximal femoral focal deficiency. My whole life, I have had surgery after surgery, including one for which I was the first person in the world to have a unique orthopedic surgery that now only eight kids have ever had. Through my four years in college, I grew to support the ways of intersectional feminism. I am 22 now. And if you told middle school me how comfortable and proud I would be of my body one day, I wouldn't believe you. I hope that opening the lines of conversation about disability advocacy, inclusion and respect will increase respect for disabled youth. Age and disability are not related. My legs have been different lengths since I came out of the womb. Yet on the elevator, a professor asked how I hurt myself when I will be off crutches or what happened? The answer to these is, I didn't, never, and I was born respectively. There was a time I didn't see my disability as unique. There were periods that I tried to hide it. Now I'm embracing it and promoting understanding. So people don't glare at me when I look too young to use a handicapped parking spot. So the elevators and ramps aren't in inconvenient spots in the buildings. So more than 2% of characters in the top 10 Nielsen-rated shows and the top 21 streaming original shows will have disabilities so that people can listen. Thank you so much, Erin. That's incredible. Yeah. And That's an- what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, and that notion that we should all be kind. We should be yeah. kind with our words and with our actions and be considerate. And language is not just a tool which names our world, it shapes it. And I think often we have this idea that in this era of political correctness, we are policing people for the language in which they use. But actually, it's just asking people to be kind. It's saying that the dictionary was also designed by people who had no lived experience of what it was like to be disabled or to be a person of colour. And we are removing the words that cause offence. And we are asking you to be kinder with the words that you choose. And If people say, well, you know, what do I say? How do I refer to you? My name is Sinead and yours is Adwa and that's a pretty good start. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Thank you so much, Erin, for sending that through. Girls Listen. So now we have Girls Listen. Throughout your career, Sinead, you've shown that your body inside doesn't 
matter when it comes to achieving your dreams and championing intersectionality as a way forward for every voice. What advice or tools would you share with listeners as they face their own challenges? I got to give a TED talk in New York in 2017. And in many ways, that was probably the the impetus for all of the work that I'm doing at the moment and the starting point. And prior to it, I was violently unwell. I was so nervous. And I was nervous because I'd heard all of these things that, that TED would change your life. Mm-hmm. And prior to it, about an hour beforehand, I had to stand in the disabled bathroom in TED's headquarters in front of the mirror. And I told myself two things. Number one, nobody can tell this story better than you can because yeah. it's your story. And number two, the reason why you're nervous is because you're worried that your dreams may be fulfilled. But actually, you can't predict that. You can't predict what's going to happen afterwards. So why don't you just revel in this moment now and see what happens? And I think for me, I'll be absolutely frank. If I wasn't disabled, I would not be having this conversation with you, Adwa. I would not know you. I would not be on the September cover of British Vogue. I would not be interested in fashion. I may not even be a teacher because my experience of being disabled and me being a disabled woman has shaped every ambition, every opportunity and everything that I did. I'm interested in fashion initially because I felt left out. Had I have felt included, like most people, what would I be doing with my life? So for me, my physicality and my disability, it matters and it doesn't matter. It matters because it's part of my identity. It's not all of me, but it shapes everything that I do and how I see the world. And if I was to give people advice, if I was in a position to do that, I would ask for people to revel in who they are themselves, their whole selves, that you are enough and you are good enough as you are. And to find the qualities within that that you are most proud of because what you are interested in, how you view the world and how you achieve and travel the world is based on your whole self. And I think we need to all take moments to be proud of our whole selves, even the parts that aren't so great, though I have none of those. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sinead. So last but not least, Girls Take Action. Girls Take Action is where we share what we've learned from our conversation today and how that can help listeners to be more proactive. How could the world be more inclusive to people like you, Sinead? What of a few? I know there's quite a few. No, no, no. I have to admit a secret in terms of what I've learned from this conversation. It's not really a secret, but at the shoot for the September cover, I was asked one question. I was asked, who is my force for change? And Adwa, I said you, and I'm not nice enough to lie. Mm. Um, so you can <laughs> you can mention it to Edward. And I said you because you have created, along with Holly, Girls Talk. And you have used the platforms, which you have worked very hard to obtain, to not be satisfied with your own achievements, but to lift people up, to bring other people with you and to amplify their voices. And if I was to recommend a vehicle for change for anybody else, that is what I have learned from you. And it is what I try to manifest in my own work and in my own life. And I think if we were all more conscious of that, that it's not just about ourselves, but how can we bring other people with us, literally and proverbially, 
the world would be a better place. Yeah, I've learned that too. Not about me, but about you. Oh, that's kind. <laughs> I've, I've, it is, it's, it's, it's always about, I think it's like what you said, nobody can tell this story better than no. you and then better than me. But it's also, you know, it's about keeping that in mind, but it's also, I've always wanted, I think, I'd, it would be the same for me. I'm not disabled, but I have been through certain challenging times in my life. And if I hadn't have been through those, I wouldn't be sitting here speaking to you. Nope. And I have to be grateful for that, even though parts of that were were dark and shit and yeah. tiring and, and saddening. But they have brought me here today speaking to you, Sinead. And yeah. I am so incredibly grateful for that. But always, I think, when we go back to this idea of not feeling part of or not feeling included, that has shaped the way I've looked at things. If I really look back at school and all these different times, because I only want for us all to be up there together. Yeah. Really. And for us to to feel like we can access things with as much power and agency as we individually want to hold. And I think it's just about opening up those proverbial doors that we haven't been allowed enter into before. And mm-hmm. and just being allowed to be ourselves. We're just yeah. asking the world for permission to be ourselves. And I think that's was the, you know, for anyone who had weird thoughts about Edwards and the Duchess of Sussex, Forces for Change, British Vogue cover, it it was just that standing with you and having our photo taken will without a doubt be one of my favourite memories in my fashion career because it it we were all there for different reasons, but it was it was one of the first times that I have ever felt really myself mm. and really in a in a shoot that per yeah. se you know obviously I'm myself when I'm with the people I love but in a, a fashion context yeah. I felt truly myself and I felt allowed to be me yeah and that's just all what we need thank you so much Sinead for taking the time to be on the girls tour I can't thank you enough no, it's been thank you It'll from be the very moment I met you I knew listeners. I wanted you well, no. just listening <laughs> us to fawn over each other going oh they both think they're it's great it's always like that it's like, oh, nice. <laughs> it's like they like each other <laughs> yeah. Yeah. well there's no friction well, we is do. there <laughs> no <laughs> thank you so much thank you and have an amazing time in Paris. Thank you. And I will definitely see you yes, when you're back. Yes, I'll see you soon. I'll see you soon. Enjoy oh. your time off. You deserve it. Thank you. And for all my lovely listeners, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And as always, mad, mad, mad amounts of love. We may have stopped talking, but that doesn't mean you have to. Talk to us on our Instagram at Girls Talk or send us your poetry, essays, stories, artwork or anything else you want to share at girlstalk.com. Mad love to Nike for helping us to create such great chat and even better actions for our girls. We are always here and we're always listening. I'm Adjua Boa, this was the Girls Talk podcast and you are amazing.